Now that your picture's in the paper being perfectly admired, you can have it a one that you have ever desired. All you gotta tell me now is wow, 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 wow. Welcome to the working week. Oh, I know it don't thrill you. I hope it don't kill you. Welcome to the working week. You gotta do it till you do it till you get it. Listen to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Mimi Pond. Uh, Mimi's latest book is Over Easy from Drawn and Quarterly. It came out in, I guess, the spring? Is it May? Yes, April. April. There we go. I was going to say April, but like, was it that? Was it? But we'll go with April. Um, and Mimi will actually be in Vancouver to do, we'll be here to do a talk at Canzine um, on this upcoming weekend on November 7th. Is it? Look at me. I wrote down all the time and everything and forgot to look at the actual day. Uh, November 8th. Um, and that'll be at 4 o'clock at the uh, SFU, like the SFU Woodward's building. Um, be sure to check it out. And you're also going to be siding there as well. Yeah, I think so, yes. Um, with uh, our good friends at Lucky's Comics. A very fine store. As well. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, I, I love bookstores, books, comics. I love it all. They're all wonderful. Um, and Mimi will also be at the California College of Art uh, doing a talk on, or, sorry, College of the Arts, correct myself, on November uh, 14th, um, a week later. Thank you for joining me, Mimi. Well, it's my pleasure. I really, really loved your book. Well, thank you so much. It was... Uh, I loved how it's just like a little kind of snippet of time, um, but you capture it in such great detail. Well, thanks. Thanks. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it's, everything has changed so dramatically since then in so many ways. Uh, it's kind of amazing. Now, I have some questions kind of leading up to the book. Um, a little curious about uh, growing up. Um, one of the things about this book uh, is it kind of takes place at a particular cultural shifting, change of time in the late 70s. And one of the feelings I got from, from reading this, you talking about your childhood growing up in California, uh, is you didn't seem to really identify with this like quintessential idea of California in the 70s. No, I really, I was really alienated. I really wanted to be a, a beatnik in Greenwich Village in the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole, like, beach culture thing was lost on me, partly because 
I didn't drive and I lived 20 miles from the beach. So it was hard to get to the beach in the first place. And then uh, the, um, the kids in my high school who were into surfing were all the stoners who were like just dumbass, like um, Spicoli times 10. I mean, I went to high school with at least 10 Spicolis. You know, if you know that character from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, um, you know, the stoner dude who sits in the back of the room and interjects some idiotic remark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and those people, they weren't interested in books or reading or, you know, anything that I remotely liked what I was interested in. So I just couldn't relate. Now, the book, um, you move to, um, it was in Oakland. Is that where the restaurant was? Uh-huh. Um, to me, it seems like that's such part of the reason the book is for you. It's a change in life. Like this is kind of your big kind of moving out, growing up and kind of transitionary. And I'm wondering about, um, did you always identify that uh, point in your life like that? Oh, yeah. You know, because I was finally away from home and <clears throat> out from under my mother's thumb and, you know, free to like explore and figure out who it was I wanted to be. So it was very liberating, and, and it, you know, it, it, you know, everything in Southern California, everything in Southern California that's over 20 years old, you know, they, they knock it out down and put in a strip mall. <laughs> so, you know, going to the Bay Area where there's, you know, most of the buildings are over 50 years old and, and a lot of them are over 100 years old was, was really uh, refreshing and, and much more interesting to me. Um, and and also they they have a great public transit system, so you could get around and explore a lot more than mm -hmm. what I was used to. I didn't learn to drive till I was 23, so um, which was another weird kind of um, self-destructive way of trying to be different. You know, it's like I would be the only one in Southern California who didn't know how to drive, <laughs> <laughs> besides Ray Bradbury. You know, <laughs> he doesn't need to. Well, he doesn't now. He's dead. No. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. Um. I got to go in his house. His house came up for sale recently, and my my girlfriend, who is the famous lesbian folk singer artist Frank P H R A N C, mm -hmm. um, she's she's uh, one of my best friends. She called me up and she said, "Ray Bradbury's house is up for sale. There's an open house. Let's go." So we did. It was awesome. It was amazing. It's this beautiful house. It was like fairly modest, you know, uh, in terms of being the home of, you know, one of one of the world's greatest science fiction writers. Um, and what was really the greatest thing about it was that there were bookshelves everywhere. After his kids moved out, he built bookshelves in the showers in his his kids' bathrooms because he was running out of space. For bookshelves, he he worked in his basement in this sort of like like basically low ceiling book jammed lair. That when we saw it, all the everything was gone, but you could just see it, it was just nothing but rows and rows of bookshelves. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this this sort of book cavern. Anyway, I just had to say that because it was like I met him when I went to my very first Comic Con in San Diego in <clears throat> about 1970. Oh wow! At when it was held at uh, 
the um, at the University of California at San Diego in in La Jolla. Um, they had it there, and you know, I was 14, and I shook his hand, and I just thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And um, so I was going to those comic cons back when they really were like nothing but like you know what sprang from the the fervid minds of mouth-breathing teenage boys. <laughs> <laughs> like serious, hardcore nerddom. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, were anyway. you... Are, like, in the book, you mentioned reading Pogo um, and something else. I forget what else. Like, you had the, the those comics. Oh, uh, Little Little Abner and Pogo and um, yeah. uh, New Yorker, yeah, New Yorker. Uh, collections. Yeah. Yeah, but so my dad was an amateur cartoonist who who taught me how to draw. Did he bring you to the to the San Diego Comic Convention at that point, or was that yeah, something you? Yeah, no, he did. He and yeah, he he used to take us to like, you know, I mean, I was going to see you know, Fellini movies with him at, at art theaters when I was like twelve. <laughs> <laughs> he also took me to see the producers in its when it originally came out i think it was like 1968 and and i still laugh at the same things in the producers that i laughed at when i was 12 years old it was an amazing movie i had it playing in the background of my i think grade 4 birthday party so i would have been 9 really <laughs> that's great yeah. <laughs> I, I i had a fondness for mel brooks as a child which uh, oh, i don't think I most th children did at that point <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so were you uh, going to these events uh, with your dad? Um, were you reading other comics then, or was there, like, an interest in yourself in drawing? Well, I was, no, I, it was always, I was going to grow up and be a cartoonist. That okay. was just, the, you know, the name of the game. Um, so, yeah, I was really interested in comics. Um, and... I mean, I wasn't ever interested in superhero comics ever because I just, it was nothing in it for me. You know, there was like, if there were any girls at all, they weren't involved in any of the action. Yeah. And I don't know, even Wonder Woman was just like, you know, nothing but, you know, a, a weird kind of bondage comic strip. Like, she's always Oh, I, tied I don't up, think that's you know? not weird at all. Or it is, I don't know, if, but it's, people know that it's pretty, pretty factual that that's... Uh, you know, I was reading, yeah. like, you know, Richie Rich and Archie comics. I loved Archie comics, and actually Ar I, I felt really betrayed by Archie because when I got to high school, it was absolutely not, nothing like what I had been led to expect my adolescence would be about. Like, we would drive past the high school I knew I was going to be attending when I was younger, and I'd say, okay, there's the high school. And i look on the other side of the street, there was no malt shop. <laughs> I was like, where's the malt shop? Where's Pop Soda Shack? I mean, come on. <laughs> No one's driving a jalopy to school. No, I mean the closest it got was was there a, there was a Der schnitzel next to the school where we, you would go hang out, but it's not the same. I mean, there's just those little tables outside, you know. No, I think the schnitzel house would be a very different experience than the malt shop. Yeah, crappy hot dog, a frame. <laughs> <laughs> Are you um, familiar with Der schnitzel? I, I am a fan of a schnitzel. I, I will say I, I enjoy schnitzel. Um, we don't have a lot of Are German we, places in Vancouver, but... No, 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 no. I'm not talking about schnitzel. I'm talking oh, okay. about Derby schnitzel. It's a hot dog oh. stand. Oh, okay. I didn't know what that with, was. with actual schnitzel. Oh, okay. Now I'm kind of disappointed. I was, no, I was this is like was... an A-framed 
like eight classic A-framed fifties um, fast food stand okay. called Dervener Kitzel. That that makes more sense for the teenagers than a than a schnitzel. Place. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for the confusion there. <laughs> um, so when you went to to art school, um, was there a particular choice in that one um, away from home in Northern California? Well, yeah, I mean, I I had to get. I mean, I loved my mother; she was great. But at that point, I felt like I really had to just get away and LA was too close like she could have come up to visit on weekends way too much yeah and so Oakland was just far enough also Cal Arts had just opened a few years before that was in in uh, Valencia which is just like uh, 30 miles north of Los Angeles and it's in the middle of this godforsaken hellhole subdivision nothingness and like there's nothing going on besides the school, which I guess is good if you're, like, there to do nothing but art 24-7. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I wanted to live in in some place that was more interesting than San Diego, and that sure wasn't Valencia. So um, I loved the Bay Area. I had already been there to visit. And uh, it, it, it was a small school, and it just felt right for me at the time. It was very welcoming, and I, I really did enjoy my time there. Did you know of any kind of the comic scene up there at that point, or had you heard um, about no, the well, grounds? I, I mean, I, there was there was like um, people I I got to know much later, um, mm-hmm. like Bill Griffiths and uh, Spain Rodriguez and Paul Mavridis, and um, I, eventually I was introduced to um, Bob Armstrong, who did uh, Mickey Rat, and he was. Uh, in um, he's one of Robert Crumb's best friends and neighbors, and um, was in the Cheap Suit Serenaders with with Robert Crumb, and we became good friends. And then I met Crumb and his wife Aileen. Um, so after I left school, I got acquainted with those people. But yeah, there was there was not. I didn't really. I wasn't into any kind of comic scene then. And at my at that point at my school. The whole idea of comics was strictly poo-pooed, mm-hmm. like you know, very much looked down upon. But you know, you you do a you do a cartoon and you'd show it to your teacher and they'd laugh at it. You know, <laughs> it's like, but it wasn't art. No. And now they have a master's in comics program. Yep. <laughs> Things have progressed nicely, in some ways. Um, yeah, you, you know, so I, when I go when I go speak here, I, I certainly expect that there will be a giant banner up that says "You were right." <laughs> <laughs> How were you able to kind of work on your comic practice? Were you able to find ways in the in the course that you were doing? Um, or yeah, I would I would do stuff just for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was still you know I was still really interested in in you know fine art and learning how to draw and, and doing all that. But, um, you know, I would just do stuff on my own. Um, it, you know, at that point, I wasn't looking towards getting published. I was just kind of goofing around with it. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it wasn't until I was actually working in the restaurant that I was offered the chance to be in the adult classified newspaper, The Spectator. (laughs) 
for twelve dollars a week. I think you'd be, uh, or maybe you already know how many cartoonists uh, made their bread and butter with Screw Magazine in New York over the years. So. Oh yeah. It's uh, you know, well, you gotta do. We all do, do what we need to do. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of work did you want to do for yourself at that point? Um, other than being funny. Um, well, I was the class that that really galvanized me the most. Um, was a really wonderful class I wound up taking three times called printmaking and creative writing, and it was so it was it was letterpress printing and writing, and I had this wonderful teacher named Betsy Davids, who's like one of the the um, godmothers of letterpress printing. I mean, um, and so the idea of getting to write and illustrate my own work and then make it into a book was like you know, really exciting to me because I, I just, I grew up in a book-loving household and, and then making, making artist books. Like I made, I made books that, that, that opened up like purses and one that opened up like a wallet. Um, I wound up eventually working on a book with Betsy Davids that she got a grant to do where we used a shower cap for the cover. And so it was really satisfying just making these objects and illustrating my own work and so you know more and more that's what it became about for me she she wasn't as stringent uh, anti-cartooning oh no no she she didn't care <laughs> <laughs> that's such an odd combination you kind of expect cartoonists to take that kind of course just by the title yeah well i mean it was sort of like you know like uh you know, a much fancier form of zine making. Mm -hmm. um, now, the diner, um, was that your first kind of real job? Or had you had... Well, I'd had, I'd had a few other crappy jobs before that, like working in a dry cleaners, which was really disgusting because you'd like, you know, you'd, you'd take in dry cleaning from like old men with like pants with shit stains on them and... <laughs> <laughs> really, some nasty stuff. Um, I, I did I did some phone solicitation briefly. That was really nightmarish. Um, but yeah, that was my first full time real job. What was it about it that uh, kept that that made you want to, or kind of kept you in? Because it seems like a pretty, well, especially was, at I first, mean, was... intensive. I mean, it, it's very intensive, but the people working there were, it was a fun place to work. You know, there was always something exciting going on. And of course, the best thing of all about it was the, the manager who is fictionalized in the book as, as the character Laszlo Marenge, whose actual nom de plume in real life was Nestor Marzipan, um, who just made game. everyone, yeah, I mean, he's just a, a, a really brilliant, sharp, funny, just, fantastic person who um, made everyone feel like he, he was your best friend and and who made you feel like you weren't just you know a, a miserable peon working in a restaurant you were you know a spy in in the house of food I mean you were there to like take notes on everything and everyone and and turn it into something at some point and and uh, we he and I actually talked for a long time about collaborating on something about the restaurant and 
um, unfortunately, he he died, and I just, you know, I had been compiling notes for years, and, it, you know, stayed in the back of my mind. I just was like, literally from the first day I went to work there, this thing just, this place just lodged itself in my gut and, and wasn't going to let go until I figured out what the story was. So you feel it's more the particular place um, that's the story, not necessarily that kind of point in your life? Um, well, it was, it was sort of uh, a perfect storm of everything. It was, you know, a coming-of-age thing for me, and it was a particular time and place, and it was that shift from, from hippiedom to punk that was happening mm -hmm. all at once that made it so crazy. And, it, you know, it, I mean, I, it was just like a... The 70s up until that point had, had just seemed to me like the lamest decade ever. You know, like the, the, the 60s had been really exciting, and there'd been hippies and the, the peace movement and rock and roll and Woodstock, and then we were just left with the, you know, the leftover bong water mm -hmm. and all that bad pop music, you know, and arena rock. And then punk finally came along, and it was just like a, a breath of sewer gas. <laughs> like, <laughs> ah, the aroma. <laughs> um, so the punk scene didn't exactly excite you or interest you? No, it much. did. No, 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 it did. It, I, okay. that, no, it was like, <laughs> I, w I would say it was a breath of fresh air, but it doesn't sound very punk to say that. That's why I said okay. it was like, <laughs> you know, refreshing sewer gas because it was like, it was, it was like, thank God we can finally stop all pretending to be mellow. You know, we're all pissed off, you know, because this has been like the worst decade ever, and everyone's a phony, and Karen Carpenter can suck my dick, and let's go. <laughs> hey, ho. <laughs> okay. I get it. I mean, really, they, I mean, I, I can appreciate the Carpenters now for their harmonies and all that stuff, but they were so Republican at the time. I mean, they were from Orange County. They were like, I don't know, they were just like, almost like, you know, Nixon spawn. Mm -hmm. They're kind of like, it's so pop and so clean and so non-offensive in every yeah, which way. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, in a way, I, I can finally now appreciate them because it, it's so, like, transcendentally pop and pure and lush and weird in its own deeply weird way, which it turns out they were, of course. Mm -hmm. And then the same with, with the Bee Gees. Like, back then, it's like you wouldn't be caught dead listening to the Bee Gees. It was like, they were, it was like the enemy, like everyone who was into disco was like the equivalent of the douchebags of today. You know, the Guy Fieri's, the Jersey Shore types. Oh, Those yeah. were the people listening to disco then. Whereas, like, now, just a few years ago, my husband and I rediscovered the, the, the Bee Gees, and we were like, oh, my God, this is genius. But at the time, it was like, no. <laughs> well, no, even, we can't listen to that. Even the Saturday Night Fever era, that was well into their careers as songwriters, wasn't it? Yeah. And actually, Saturday Night Fever is a very dark movie. Mm -hmm. I worked at a youth drop-in center where that was on the list of movies we weren't allowed to show. Oh, yeah? Of, yeah. <laughs> there wasn't bad, a lot. It, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty dark movie. I mean, it, it, you know, you, I, I assumed it was just like all about, oh, kids in a disco, Brooklyn, but it's, it's you know, it's really 
start, you know, a kid jumps off the bridge, you know, it's, it's not good. <laughs> so how much time had passed um, between um, the experience that's in the book and when you started uh, revisiting it and wanting to document it? Well, I mean, I wanted, I, 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 I knew I was going to have to tell the story since mm -hmm. the first day I went to work there, but I really didn't get started on it in earnest until my kids were, were small. Um, it was like after my son was born, my, my first child, you know, I was like, just sort of like besotted with baby love. I was just like, oh, this is the best thing ever. And like, why, if you had a baby, why would you ever want to like, do anything but be with your baby? And then I just like this light went off in my brain. I went, oh, so that guy we all thought was our groovy beatnik dad in Oakland, our restaurant manager, he was like hanging out with us, but he had this family at home that he wasn't spending that much time with. Like, what's up with that? And I, I really realized that this was a character that was much more complex than I had allowed myself to think. Mm -hmm. So that made it much more interesting for me. That really sort of gave me a hook. Did you, was he still around for you to be able to ask him no. questions about that no. time? No, he was, he had died years earlier. Okay. No, but I did, I did go back um, many times. I still, I had maintained um, friendships with a lot of the people that I had worked with and, and went back to visit many times and talked to many of my coworkers about their experiences and um, included them a lot of them, these episodes in the book. Um, now I get the idea that um, it's less verbatim um, everything that happened, but more just kind of grabbing snippets from the points in time, like you just said, like you talked well, about. Well, it's fiction. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's inspired by true life events. We'll mm -hmm. say that. So, so I was trying to get closer to the emotional truth of the time and place than the actual, you know, the actual verbatim, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You know, I just, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have a real narrative drive that I, that wouldn't be possible with the way it happened in real life because things played out more slowly and, and more gradually than they actually do in the book. How long did you work there for? I worked there for four years. Okay. What kind of uh, new insights came from getting to know uh, the folks that you didn't have before within that, during that time? Um, like you mentioned, the one thing with the Laszlo uh, character um, in kind of well, looking him through, actually that, I, through a different lens. I actually found out from talking to people who worked there later that there was a lot more shit going on than I even realized. Like, I was like, pretty much still being a pretty good girl and like working and going home and you know going to bed and getting up in the morning and going back to work well they were all out partying you know all the time and so um, other people were getting into some really crazy shit and a lot of people wound up you know down the rabbit hole of drug addiction for years and years you know finally to like amazingly reemerge miraculously and, yeah. you'd, you know, like these people had been like through hell with, you know, drug addiction and rehab and relapse and more rehab. And and you'd talk to them about that time and you'd think, man, you really suffered. This place really took you down the garden path. And they're going, yeah, 
I know, but wasn't it fun? <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I knew I really was on to something, because it was like, you know, it really was fun. It was mm-hmm. crazy and strange, and, and sometimes it got ugly, but it, it was really fun. And, you know, people got away with murder, almost. <laughs> In a way that, like, people don't anymore. Actually, I had a, a, a brief interview this morning with someone from the CBC who is doing an interview mostly about a book that's come out about career waitresses, but they, they had also seen my book, and they wanted to get my take on it, and I, they asked me what I thought was the difference between, you know, working in a restaurant then and working in a restaurant now. And, and I would say the difference is, like, now in every restaurant there's video, cameras trained on you. You've got to charge people for every pat of butter. Everything is counted. <laughs> you know, it's all, it's all in the system. You know, you just like, you, you're, like, you're always being, you know, clocked in and clocked out, and everything has to be just so... And so, you know, there's, you, you, we used to get away with, like, giving away food to friends and all this stuff. And I said, but, you know, one thing's never going to change. And that's, like, in, in every restaurant everywhere, there's always going to be someone shagging in the walk-in. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what people in restaurants do, you know? Yeah, high-stress situations and people... Yeah find ways to connect it's that idea of like you always spend your time with the same people and uh yeah you know things happen like the uh the two characters getting married and then very quickly yeah. regretting it yes that really did happen um and the scene where i had to wait on the drunk hookers that really happened that was your your first day or one of your yeah. first days? Yeah, my first day, my first day waitressing. Sort of a little hazing experience. When did you feel you, re- you, you were actually, you had r- waitressing kind of figured out? Was it a quick... Oh, gosh, I don't know. You know, it took a while to, like, get good at it. Um, I, I can't pinpoint any particular time or place. I mean, I... I I think I, I don't know if every waitress has has uh, waitress nightmares, but I used to I used to have dreams that like I was the only one waiting tables, and there were like you know ten tables waiting for their food, and I had I had lost their tickets, and you know the cooks were were missing, and there were these customers were getting angrier and angrier, that kind of thing. Um, and and to this day I have. Um, compulsive busing disorder I I have to clear a table I can't stand to see like you know uh, plates sitting on the table after people are finished eating I've got to clear the station man do you ever get waitresses mad at you uh, well I try to resist in restaurants but at home I'm like you know are you done with that can I get you anything else <laughs> more coffee do you bring your kids the bill after dinner <laughs> Actually, we turned the ch- we turned our children into the wait staff uh, when they were still living at home, so they were like, um, you know, they had to clear the table and do the dishes. And so a- after they left, we we're like, where are the house elves? <laughs> <laughs> um, Got to make use out of them, right? Oh yeah. Now, um, oh, what when you left? 
um, the restaurant was it to go, were you able to secure enough uh, comics work, illustration work, to be able to sustain yourself, or? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I saved up, I saved up money to move to New York, and I, um, I was literally just about to run out of funds when I was offered the opportunity to do the Valley Girls Guide to Life. I had picked up work when I, after I moved to New York. I was doing comics for the Village Voice, which was great. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was, I was almost making enough to support myself, but not really. And it was like things were about to come to a head. And then I got, you know, this editor said, do you want to do a book about Valley Girls? And I said, sure. I had no idea what it was. I had not, never heard the Frank Zappa song, but I said, yeah, sure, I can do that. <laughs> so I had to, like, I didn't even have a record player. I had to buy the record and go to a friend's apartment and listen to the song. Like, oh, yeah, that. I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> what was the book like? Um, well, it was, on, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. It sold, like, you know, 20,000 copies. It, uh, it did really well. Um, and it really, uh, the way I got the job was I was entertaining this editor over lunch who had seen my comics in the, in the Village Voice and invited me to have lunch. And I was entertaining him with stories about these stoners, I, surfer dudes I went to high school with. And so when I, when I heard, you know, the Valley Girl song with Moon Zappa, I was like, oh, this is just the same thing. And it's like, dude, we should go to the beach, man. Let's get some reds and get stoned and hang out at the beach. So a Valley Girl is just like, a more speeded up version. No. I was like, ow. Oh. A little more gum chewing. Well talking yeah, or something. Yeah. But awesome, you know. Uh, so did you always have kind of an interest in doing humor? Uh, as well as yeah. the comics? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh and you also did stuff at National Lampoon, right? Uh huh. Yeah, and actually that's how that's how I got my foot in the door and got to New York is I had was still waitressing and I sold some cartoons to uh, Sherry Flanagan, who was the comics editor at the National Lampoon and also the famously the creator of, of Trots uh, and Bonnie, yeah, and, and other other strips for the Lampoon, very talented, great mentor to me, and who uh, invited me to meet her at Comic-Con in San Diego in 1980, and so I drove I, by then, I finally had a car. I drove to San Diego and, and got to hang out with her and Mary Kay Brown and uh, and Sam Gross, the famous New Yorker cartoonist who's just a wonderful person, and uh, a number of other people. And, you know, suddenly I'm there with my idols driving them around, showing them my hometown. It was like the, the greatest. And then Sherry said, well, you should move to New York. I was like, I was never been there. She's like, well, you could stay with me. <laughs> so I went I went and visited like two or three times and stayed with her and like you know met other cartoonists and like learned that this illustrator who did covers for the for the New Yorker who I met at a New Yorker cartoonist lunch they would get together like every Tuesday or Wednesday they still do uh after they would submit their their comics for the week at the at the New Yorker they would they would all meet for lunch, and I met an illustrator named Roxy Monroe, who's now a, a uh, very well-known children's book author, who said, well, I'm giving up a sublet on the Upper West Side, and someone needs to take it over. And I was like, here I am. So that's how I got to New York. 
Um, but you're a West Coast woman by heart. Well, I love New York and I miss New York desperately. Uh, our daughter is now there going to Cooper Union um, studying art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to go back. Uh, but, um, you know, it's it's... We raised our kids here because we, you know, we, we just couldn't quite, both my husband, uh, who's the painter Wayne White, and I are, you know, he's from the suburbs in Tennessee and, and the country, and I'm from, you know, suburban San Diego, and we just couldn't quite imagine raising kids in Manhattan, you know, in those tiny cramped places and everything. So we, he was... He was uh, still working on Pee Wee's Playhouse, and he was getting a lot more work in L.A., so we made the decision to move to Los Angeles um, and have a family here. Okay. Seems quite the uh, quite the amazing array of artists they've had on Pee Wee's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he, Paul was really wonderful in providing a, an environment for uh, Wayne and Gary Panter and Rick Heitzman to just you know, go nuts. It's really a, a fantastic time in their lives. And I don't know if you know this, but I also, I wrote an episode of Dewey's Playhouse with Miss Yvonne, oh, the most nice. beautiful lady in Puppetland, Lynn Stewart. <laughs> um, and she, she and I wrote the episode Rebarella, in where uh, Reba makes over, uh, I'm sorry, Miss Yvonne makes over Reba, the male lady, to go on a date with Derek the fireman. Except she makes her over to look exactly like her. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was really fun, and it ruined me for writing for television because this is what happened: we wrote a script, and then they shot it. Yeah. And I thought that's how it worked, and that's not how it works. <laughs> no. You write no. a script, and and twenty people piss on it, and they completely tear it apart and put it back together, and then. And then they put your name on it, and you go, what? <laughs> How much... I know you, you wrote for The Simpsons. What other um, TV did you write for? I was briefly on staff uh, on the last season of Designing Women. And um, by then, my, they let me, you know, in a, a burst of, of uh, misguided feminism, they allowed me to bring my son and the nanny to work with me. And... Um, it was just was a bad combination all the way around because I had never been on staff of a TV show and I had never worked in an office before. I'd never been a mother before. I wasn't getting enough sleep. It was the last season of the show. Linda Bloodworth, who created the show, was off basically winning the election for Bill Clinton. This is 1992. <clears throat> and uh, it was the last season... All the good ideas had been done, and none of the people on the show wanted to be there anymore. So mm-hmm. it was <clears throat> it was not good. It only lasted like three months for me. So um, I I I finally realized that, and this was, actually it took me a while longer. My husband and I pitched show ideas for years until we were blue in the face <clears throat> in Hollywood with it, you know, with no luck, and we both finally decided we were going to turn our backs on Hollywood. <laughs> so it's worked out well for us, the turning our back on Hollywood mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> well, you get to to explore um, kind of more of your vision. Like I said, like there's very well, few opportunities like Pee Wee's has. Yeah, I mean, the 
like, once I realized I wasn't going to make any money in Hollywood and I wasn't making any money anyway, I thought, well, you know, I'm not working, and here's my opportunity to finally start the story that I've, you know, been that's been nagging me all these years. So I guess I have to do it because no one's paying me anyway. So you you were working on it for quite some time before you got signed to. Uh, oh yeah. Well, initially I was going to do it as a, a straight piece of fiction, you know, not as not as a graphic novel because I just couldn't imagine doing all that drawing. I was like, there was no way I could do all that drawing. That was just crazy talk. <laughs> so, um, and then um, my agent couldn't sell it, and I finally had to admit my, to myself that it wanted to be a graphic novel. So I finally knuckled under. How far into it were you um, before you got signed? Uh, well, I had done about 30 pages when I showed it to Tom Devlin at John and Quarterly, and then they wanted to see about uh, 30 more pages before they finally uh, agreed to publish it. And then it's the first of two parts? Yes. So I'm working on the second part now. Which I uh, would very much look forward to, as I said, I really... I really enjoyed it. It was just, I don't know, kind of fun to read, which I don't get from a lot of books in that same way. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things I want to ask about is, um, I know you do comics for the LA Times, um, and the, the one that I'm most excited about is your chance to uh, sit with um, Phyllis Diller. Yeah, that was really fun. It was it was it was kind of <clears throat> um, you know, I was sort of stupefied to be in her presence because I just admired her so much and I had read her her memoir which is called like a lampshade in a whorehouse <laughs> <laughs> and I was like I'm not really a, a reporter or an interviewer so I was like sort of like just sort of dumbstruck in terms of what to ask her and and kind of just bundled my way through sitting with her. Like her her assistant had said, you could have a half hour with her. And she she let me hang around for a whole hour in her studio while she did these watercolors. And I drew her and tried to ask her some questions. And then um, the one thing I couldn't put in the in the Times comic strip, which seemed to me to be the most profound thing of all, but it just seemed a little too harsh for like the readers of the LA Times. Um, mm -hmm many of whom are hard-working people who go to jobs every day. Uh, at the end of, of our time together, um, she said, you know, we're lucky to do what we do. I said, I know. I said, I feel sorry for people who just have to work at regular jobs. And she says, it's their own fault. <laughs> I was like, Wow. <laughs> So I had, to, I had to spare my readers, <laughs> but it seemed to me like really, like really profound. <laughs> that that could be a word. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, definitely someone who has had uh, a more beneficial uh, recent years than than other folks have had, maybe. Well, but her whole backstory was like she didn't start doing stand-up until she was the 35-year-old mother of five. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and her and she had a deadbeat husband who couldn't and wouldn't work, and she was writing ad copy and and um, um, and radio jingles and radio copy in San Francisco and living in Alameda <clears throat> and and struggling and. And her husband kept saying, "You know, you're funny. You should you should be a comedian." And like the whole stand-up comedy thing was really taking off in in the early '50s in San Francisco at like the the Hungry Eye and the Purple Onion and places like that. And so she she worked up an act, and and she and her husband just decided that she was going to try to make it. And they they parked their kids with their grandparents in Ohio for like I don't know five years. And while they, like, went on this grueling tour, like, from town to town, from, like, you know, crappy hotel to dive dive nightclub, trying to make it in show business, and within five years, she was a big star. So she she made it happen. And she felt, I think she felt like she didn't have any choice. She had to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So I find a lot to admire about that. Um, tell me about the paintings that she makes. Her paintings, her paintings were, they're not great and they're not terrible. They, you know, had a certain charm and whimsy about them, um, that was engaging. So, you know, I can't say that she's like a, you know, a a brilliant painting talent, but they're interesting. Honestly, if, uh, you know, she, she, the, the reason I got to interview her was because I, I got, <clears throat> I found out that she had these art parties at her house a couple times a year where she would just open up her house and let people come in and buy the art that she'd made off the walls. And I managed to get myself invited to one. And, um, I mean, the stuff was, it's selling like it was Picasso's garage sale. I mean, it was crazy. But she also had um, for sale all her wigs and costumes and, and her signature uh, little ankle booties that she wore on stage, and if I was going to have a, a something to remember Phyllis Diller by, I would have loved to have had a pair of those booties, but yeah. they were like I don't know five hundred dollars or something. So, and the painting started at like three hundred, so you know it just wasn't in the cards for me at that point. But you got to to spend an hour. But I got to hang out with her. Yeah, it sounds pretty awesome to me. Um, one of the things you mentioned you're working on uh, in your blog is Desperate Aging Hipster. Well, yeah, that was another thing I could never get going, the the Aging Hipster Handbook. Um, you know, that would have been great, and my agent couldn't sell that one either. You okay. know, but uh, you just got to keep throwing stuff against the wall and hope that something sticks. Mm-hmm. But it seems folks are uh, very much into the over easy book yeah and i i also um have a a line of products with um the tableware company fishes eddie which is in new york um okay i've done a a um a couple of trays for them and i'll be doing uh some coasters and a mug and hopefully some more stuff um they sell not only uh contemporary tableware of all kinds of different patterns, but uh, also vintage restaurant wear, which is uh, very dear to my heart since uh, when I worked at this restaurant, um, that's what they used, because <clears throat> back then you could you could pick this stuff up for nothing. Now it's highly collectible, but um, back then it was just what we used, and I 
it's like part of my my diner love and my obsession with restaurant supplies is mm-hmm. is all that all that old stuff. So um, that's been really fun. Do you have really specific dishes at home that you use? Well, actually, I just got a, a whole set of vintage restaurantware from Fishes Eddie, um, so that I'm like just completely in love with. <laughs> nice. So there's, I mean, there's a zillion patterns. There's so much old stuff that's really cool. And the other thing about it, it's great. It's almost indestructible. You know, it it, it just holds up to just about anything. Things were made to last back then. Yes. Um, thank you, Mimi, uh, for joining me. Um, oh, well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with me this evening. Reminder, folks, uh, I've been talking to Mimi Pond, whose new book is, or not new book, but latest book, uh, is Over Easy. And Mimi will be in Vancouver on November 8th to appear at Canzine, um, doing a talk at 4 o'clock. As well, Mimi will be doing a talk at the California College of Art. Uh, California of the, College of, of, the, of Art. the Arts. I keep... It's too easy to shorthand that. Uh, I know, web- and it's also similar to Cal Arts, the California Institute of the Arts, which is in Valencia. It's very confusing. But uh, this is much nicer than Valencia. Um, much nicer. On November 14th, as well as uh, the Miami... Uh, is it Miami Book Fair? I think um, that's what it's called. From the 20th to the 23rd, um, which is in Miami, in case you didn't figure that out. Uh, Florida. Thank you. Oh. Florida. It's in Florida. <laughs> Florida. You know, kind of near, near Boca. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to scout well, out some retirement called. spots. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Mimi. Thanks for having me.
Amusement for 